Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I am here at the podcast studios with Meredith Carey, Sebastian Modak, and Laura Redman, all of whom are editors for Traveler and regulars on the podcast. My name is Brad Rickman. I'm the digital director for Traveler. We have a special guest here today, dialed in by FaceTime this time. Um, that's Cheryl Conley, who is uh, in-house futurist for Ford Motor Company. And we've also got Brody the puppy in the background. So if Brody makes an appearance, he is uh, Cheryl's new puppy. And we're happy to have him. And we're very happy to have you, Cheryl. Um, the topic of the week is the future of the road trip. Um, road trips, obviously, is something very close to all of our hearts. Um, we cover them relentlessly. And we had an earlier version of this discussion in front of a live audience at uh, the Ford Hub in the World Trade Center um, in the Oculus Complex that's here close to our offices and where some of uh, Cheryl's colleagues work. And we liked it so much that we wanted to do an episode for Travelogue because we felt like our listeners would really also love this topic and be really kind of curious to hear some of the nerdy stuff that's going on here. So it's good to see you again, Cheryl. Thank you. Maybe we could start with a preliminary question that is probably going to be on everybody's minds, and I know you get a lot, so you have probably a very crisp answer to this, but what is a futurist? What's your job? You think I would have a crisp answer, but I don't don't have a crisp answer. I often try to explain it by explaining what I don't do, and that is I cannot predict the future. And that's really important for organizations to understand that no one can predict the future. And so my job is to track global trends, around the world and try to use them as provocation to challenge the status quo. And this way, it forces our company to become much more nimble and better at serving the needs of customers um, three, five, ten years down the line. That sounds like a great job to have. (laughs) So what, what, I guess, jumping in, what are the major concerns that you're looking at for the future of automotive transport? Well, when we talk about macro trends, things that are going to be playing out for two to four decades, there, of course, is population density. Uh, We are at seven and a half billion people right now, and we expect to be somewhere between nine and 11 billion by the year 2050. And this is unprecedented. I mean, in the last hundred years, the global population has tripled and consumption of things like water have more than doubled. So we know as we sit talking today here in 2017, Close to a billion people don't have access to clean or quality drinking water. So as the population grows, one of the questions we ask is, how many more people won't have access to life essential resources like water, food? And, you know, I guess by extension to a lesser degree, though, is we think about mobility as a fundamental human right. You know, you have to have the freedom to move in order to advance freedom and innovation. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about all of those people and what are their best options to get from point A to point B. And sometimes it's a car, you know, preferably a Ford car, (laughs) but a lot of times it's not. You know, it could be car sharing, ride sharing, bicycles, uh, dynamic shuttles, mass transit. And so we're exploring a much broader spectrum of mobility options than we ever have in our 100-year history. So I wanted to pose a thought exercise for everybody here and project ourselves into the future. Forget about what year it might be. And there's actually, if anybody ever is in New York and visits the Oculus and dips into the Ford Hub, there's actually a a sort of animated mural on the wall, kind of like an animated movie that sort of lives in the future and kind of depicts a vision of where things might head. So I wondered if for listeners we could maybe as a group talk about some of the things that are in that dream state, particularly for the road trip. Like what is a road trip like in the dream state of the future? I mean, are we even driving? I think that's the starting point, right? Like I'm a little terrified of that. I'm a control freak and I, I love driving. I grew up doing it, but I think there are so many people on our staff who don't even have licenses at this point. They they don't need a car. I mean, I'm, I'm going to use the word millennial, but Mayor took but those mo- people. Those people who don't have licenses aren't people who grew up in New York City and it wasn't that they didn't need it. It was that you know, they're you know from the South or from the Midwest and they just never, they had people, other people to drive them. They were kind of into you know, ride sharing, but not paying their friends for it. Um, and are you I think burned? Have you been burned? <laughs> Is there some trauma there? No, but I think that. Um I think it's really interesting when we look at our office as kind of like a case study, which is that the people who you know were born in Jersey or born in, in major cities all know how to drive, and the people who are from more rural areas, which is where you would imagine like, oh, it's really necessary to drive a car and know how to get around in a car, those are the people that realize that they didn't necessarily need that 
form of transportation to get yeah. around. I mean, I have a license, but I'm not one of those people who has a kind of emotional attachment to cars or driving or anything. I want to be on a cross-country road trip in a vehicle that's moving by itself while I'm playing a video game <laughs> in which I'm driving a car. <laughs> Can we make that happen? Cheryl, but- is that possible? <laughs> Actually, I share that dream, except that replace the video video game with um, taking a nap in the backseat, <laughs> uh, which is pretty much how I do every road trip with my family. But I think that you'll have those options in the future. Autonomous driving is something that we said we'll have on the road by 2021. Now, initially, uh, it'll be very, in very limited applications, mm-hmm. uh, probably for ride hailing or package delivery. Uh, but, you know, when we think beyond what that could look like, certainly road trips. Uh, and, and I think that that could be something where uh, families spend time in the vehicle in a co- totally different context, almost like sitting around the dinner table, you know, maybe where they're all engaged in conversation. Maybe they're all watching the same movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I know even in the car today, sometimes we listen to the same book on tape. And those things are something you would never do in the home. And so I do think the road trip provides some unique opportunities to bring together a group of people in ways that we don't typically slow down long enough to do otherwise. One of the things that I think is invisible to a lot of people when they think, like they can think about what it's like to sort of sit in some kind of room with wheels where there are video games and televisions or some version of televisions. A bus? No, but, or, yeah. <laughs> kind right. of. Like, yeah, how, I guess it's kind of like a bus. I suppose they are autonomous cars. Private, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about, like, how far do we really think this could and will get pushed? And I'm also curious about what's going on outside that car that you're in, because, you know, are we driving on roads? What is that like? What are the cars that are around us? Or are there cars Meaning, around like, us? are we flying? How far into the future are we looking? Some place that is realistic based on what we know now, but requires, you know, some time and some change to get to. In my wildest vision, there's an autonomous RV. It's not just a room. It's like a little house that I can go from like national park to national park in. And I don't know what kind of infrastructure we would need to support that. Or if you happen to be driving along a highway and you see a a giant RV without a human at the wheel. How terrifying is that? Like, does that just cause accidents because people are freak out and they veer away? I mean, or is it just a new normal that people adapt to, you know? I mean, I assume assume at some point, like there will be people who come up and never have the experience of being behind the wheel because once the autonomous driving technology gets good enough, like are there traffic lights, for example, or are the cars all sort of talking to one another such that you don't need traffic lights anymore? Are there signs? Are there, you know, what is the actual road like? Is there traffic? Yeah. Is there other traffic jams? Right. Are so cars I, I, have, I have an answer. For, I have a point of view. <laughs> Please. <laughs> we thought you might. I, I think that you guys are really good at the featuring game. And the next time I do scenario planning, I'm definitely going to tap into your very creative, rich imaginations. Those questions are questions we ask inside the company, right? I, I think we're all, as a society, excited about what autonomous vehicles will look like, when they'll happen, what capacity or context will they be used. But you raise a really good point that there's lots of other barriers that still need to be determined. What kind of infrastructure will be in place? Who will be in charge of the governance? Will it be city, state, national? What will happen with litigation, insurance? What kind of regulations will be put in place? How do you manage data, privacy, security? You know, so the list goes on and on and on. And so right now, as we start thinking about this city of tomorrow and what it looks like, we actually bring together subject matter experts for these summits around the world. We had them in London, New Delhi, um, San Francisco just this past year to start addressing these questions. And, you know, and I think in the best exploration, we leave with more questions than answers because it, it's still being figured out. But more importantly, I think when you think about Antana's future, you have to realize that it's going to be a nuanced future. And what I mean by that is that that's not going to be the universal solution for all people in all places. So we did research not so long ago, and we asked people in nine different countries, were they hopeful about an autonomous future? And the countries that are the most eager, seemingly, uh, for what this will look like are China, India, and Brazil. Whereas if you were to compare their numbers, so they're, they're about, let me say, 
over 80% optimistic about what that future will look like. More specifically, China comes in at 83%, India at 81%, and Brazil at 79%. But contrast against the U.S., the number drops down to 50%. So only one in two people are excited about it. And in the U.K. and Germany, it's just below at uh, 49% and 44%. respectively. So there are lots of people that still don't ever want to give up their car, the thrill of driving, you know, so... Do you think it's that company, or is it is it fear? Like, what do you think is no, behind I mean, some of those? it sounds cultural to a degree. I mean, a lot of people in India are used to being driven in the first place, right? So the notion that you are not behind the wheel, I mean, being behind the wheel to me is a very American conceit. I think it is absolutely an, a Western European conceit as well. Um, it also makes sense in terms of like the actual realities of a city when you have that many people yeah, I, th- I think you need additional governance or additional um, options in place in order to just make them move with, you know. And I think it's also all those places you mentioned have, ish- I can speak on behalf of India, have issues with insane traffic jams. China, they have traffic jams that last days. Oh, yeah. Um, so Bangkok. these are places that where that's probably very high on the priority list when you talk about things like mobility. The idea of having an automated system where some of those bottlenecks are opened up, I think, is probably very appealing, as opposed to places that maybe have more advanced driving infrastructure already and don't have those same problems. People might not have that as their first thought when they think of what autonomous vehicles could mean for their future. Right. The wide open roads, these like super highways, are also such an American thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, although they are failing the and they're crumbling. The the Autobahn. European, the, the, yeah. There are there are European versions of that too. They're sure. smaller, but you know. But when you get to like rural China. Right, right. Well, I mean, so Cheryl, is there a disparity in the United States surveying where you see people in dense urban areas that particularly in the last 15, 20 years have seen, you know, sort of pretty significant increases in traffic and population growth? Do you see those people with a stronger appetite for the autonomous future? It's a little bit of a mixed bag, right? Because uh, you guys are in New York City and you guys are getting by just fine without a car. You're very comfortable hailing a cab, hopping on the subway, summoning an Uber or Lyft. And so I think there are lots of ways to get around where you don't actually have the responsibility of driving behind the wheel. But we do believe that in city centers, there are some great opportunities. Right now, we're actually working with San Francisco because when we think about how to prepare for a future like this, we can't just ask individuals. We actually think that our customers expand to cities to say, what are the goals for the residents of this community? How can we help improve their quality of living? What sort of resources do you need? So right now we have a program called Chariot, and I think they're in New York as well, but they're crowdsourced dynamic shuttles. So they're somewhere between a bus and an airport shuttle, if you will, but they're intimate and they're familiar. And oftentimes you're riding with the exact same people. on a regular basis, and they determine the route and the destination based on their needs. Hmm. Will everything be electric in these scenarios? Is that just an obvious future that we are looking at? We are investing heavily in electric. In fact, a couple of years ago, we announced that we would bring out 13 new electric vehicles um, in a five-year time period. Electric, though, also requires a big investment in infrastructure. Right now, you can charge your vehicle at home, and there are lots of businesses that offer preferred parking spots for on-site charging. Ford, our employee parking lots are filled. Our best spots are for those who are driving um, electric or battery-powered vehicles. But right now, I also don't think there's a universal solution in that context because you look at what people are using as their sources of energy, and it really varies. China has been very clear that electric is a big part of their future, but um, Japan has dabbled with fuel cell technology for a very long time. You look at Brazil, and they're dependent um, historically on biofuels like ethanol because uh, they have such extraordinary resources in sugarcane. So I do think that's another thing that we have to think about through the lens of context. What are the local resources? What make the best solutions for this community? Right. I think when we like think of the future, it's very easy to slip into like one size fits all. I think it's clear that what it means for the American road trip might mean very a very different thing to what it means to a giant Chinese metropolis, you know. Well, even for urban parts of, of the US, but I'm just curious, Cheryl, do you guys think of the future as a thing that evolves urban outward or 
especially in the United States, it's very common for people to be traversing long distances. I mean, we're talking about the road trip here, and that, in my at least, you know, sort of understanding and habitation is that means you're going state to state. It means you're going from one context to another context that might be quite different, you know, urban to rural or through different urban areas. It doesn't even have to be cross-country. You know, one of the trips that I take frequently every year, and it's a sort of a road trip, sort of not, is I go up to Maine every summer to visit family. And I'm on the road between New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and then Maine itself and, you know, Rhode Island and New Hampshire kind of sprinkled in between. That's a lot of different states. And I'm wondering if you guys think about distance, or I guess just more of a question of the balance between thinking about investing in those distances, those those gaps between places, or if you just focus on the urban spots first and figuring those out and then letting the solutions kind of adapt themselves outward. So we're getting a little outside my scope because as inside of Ford, I actually don't spend a lot of time on automotive or industry trends, but I'll tell you what, what I do know is that right now we continue to improve on range for electric vehicles, but when you, especially like with a hybrid vehicle, a hybrid vehicle delivers its best performance in city driving mm -hmm. because every time you brake, you regenerate the battery and so you get the best performance. But when you get onto a highway, a hybrid vehicle operates quite differently. So for many people, historically, the electric vehicle has been mostly ideally suited in the city. I mean, when you're in New York City and you're riding a cab, you'll notice that basically a lot of those vehicles are shutting themselves off every time they come to a stoplight or a stop sign, all to save fuel. When you talk to people about their appetite for the future and their appetite for electric vehicles, is range a big obstacle for people? Is that something they think about a lot? Range anxiety is, is something I think that people really do have to consider until that infrastructure is in place. No, like, as I said, range continues to expand um, with each iteration of these electric vehicles. They get longer and longer, but you wouldn't be able to make it from New York City to Maine without multiple charging stops. And the question is, how long does it take to charge? Mm -hmm. right. so it's not like you're stopping at your gas station and then fueling your tank within five minutes. Again, there's also rapid charging that's that's been improved. But for a lot of people that own electric vehicles, they're plugging their vehicle into their garage overnight, and right. then they're good to go the next day. Right. I think the pros and cons to that in terms of road trip right now is that you could potentially add more stops and like the actual road trip would become more of a trip and less of a just straight drive if you did in fact have to sit for six hours in a town and charge at the you know one charge point i think that that's actually kind of like it's kind of like the layover yeah, in terms like of, <laughs> of the road trip um silver lining meredith right yeah. well, it, we did talk about this a little bit last time the idea that these little hubs could pop up around electric charging stations or right. that you know almost i i think of it like route 66 blowing up when it first got laid out right and all the gas stations you pull off like the roadside stop was such a thing um yeah maybe rest stops will be a little more interesting and i think you know? i think it like it right. makes it you know right now that sort of thing is easier in a state like california than it would be in say like texas like you're not going to find a charging point probably in like middle of west texas um but I think that, you know, you're going to stop a bunch in California and you're already going to be wanting to do that. So I don't think right now that is like such a detriment to like the actual road trip experience. I think that, again, you know, silver lining, you just got to think about it in a different way and, and plan. I think you have to plan around that period. Also, that technology is just going to get better and better, right? right? So yeah. it's like a starting point And as more people opt for that, there's more demand for it. So there'll be more demand for more sophisticated charging technology and but what if Range. you're not a planner? And I know there are people who like run out of gas on the highway and you get towed. <laughs> so Seb is a non-planner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what if you just run out of charge? What do you do? What, what happens now? Well, I'm going to put this crazy thing in right now, which is that when I was driving my dad's Mini, because I don't have a car and I was driving from Dallas to Louisiana, he doesn't have a spare tire. And so you just like call Mini Cooper and they come and boop, boop, boop and bring you a spare oh, tire. because there's no space in the car. Because there's no tire. space in the car. So um, I feel like the same thing, it's like AAA. Like, you know, worst case scenario, someone comes, I don't know, they bring you a little zoop and, <laughs> and like a little jolt or tow you and bring you to the closest charge point. I, like, I don't think that's going to change. I mean, like if you run out of gas, like. 
that's your fault. If you run out of power, like really, that's your fault. Well, but okay. Again, sorry, I keep I keep projecting myself into this future because I, I think it's really fascinating to think about this because there are two things. One is if you're in an autonomous car, the car knows what its range is. The car knows where the nearest charging station is. I mean, some of the early prototypes of the autonomous driving cars right now will alert you like they can sort of tell you like here's where a charging station is and here's a route to get there and if you want we can sort of take that on and then i think too one of the other interesting things in the scenario you just described is an autonomous driving car at least at some state if we assume that like the steering wheel is going away and i grant you that may be a long time i just shuddered when i you know said that. you did you did you, visibly it's a radio show but like you, you, you definitely did um and at some point, the car has to be able to handle a flat tire. Like if you think about the backup safety system right now, the backup navigation system, the backup everything in a car today, mechanical failure out. But like mechanical failure is extremely rare in cars these days. Um, they're so well made, um, especially Fords. Um, <laughs> um, Amen. <laughs> but, but, you know, again, assuming we're for at least some period of time, we're still driving. We're still driving on tires that are more or less tires like we have now. At some point, the car has to be able to handle an emergency itself. Like it has to be programmed in because there isn't any anymore the mechanism, the mechanics for a human to be that backstop. And that almost feels to me, and Cheryl, I don't know where this is in, in kind of the mix of things that you guys think about, but like that almost feels harder. I, don't, I can't even work my head around how to solve that problem, you know, in a way that like getting municipalities together and a bunch of engineers, you know, civil engineers to solve the lights problem is already, that's like an extension of a problem that already exists, but replacing human instinct and human reaction time. Does that just mean that the cars become the equivalent of a plane? Like I'm not going to be able to help someone fix a plane if like a, an engine light goes off, but it's just, it's an advanced technology. Will we continue to advance? Will there be like tech school, you know, for learning how to fix your We're all flying, be driving cyborgs. car. <laughs> I don't know. We, he wanted you to answer that, Cheryl, and I totally jumped in. So we already do see this. Like, I mean, those young people that are studying artificial intelligence, um, the engineering underpinnings of an autonomous vehicle, these people are in high demand in the marketplace. And they're not just for OEMs, but of course, for companies uh, like Google that are trying to understand this space. But there is an evolution that you guys have already alluded to that the quality continues to improve. And so for instance, I, it seems to me when I started driving, you change your oil every 3,000 miles. Um, you know, now we have vehicles on the road that go up to 10,000 miles when you change your first oil uh, change. And the car tells you so it depends a little bit on how you drive. And so those systems will be much more sophisticated. So hopefully that means there'll be earlier warnings that says, hey, this this is a little bit off. It's still working, but you should pay attention to this. And here are the resources that you can go to potentially address the concern that you have. So I, I am optimistic that those things will be developed in parallel yep. as we move forward. But again, you keep talking about the infrastructure, and I, I think we cannot emphasize that enough. You know, so a lot of this will be dependent on vehicle to infrastructure communication. We already have some things called vehicle to vehicle communication. So the way that this would work is if let's say the five of us were caravanning to um, to that vacation home in Maine and, you know, the lead car sees that there's an accident, then the second car is notified who notifies the third fourth fifth car that basically says take a different route mm -hmm. you know we're too deep in but save yourselves <laughs> you know? I, I, I feel that's pretty cool i feel pretty confident about safety in the future in the far future i i like i don't know have you guys ever had that thought you're driving on a highway you're going like 70 miles an hour on a highway and you look around and you're like this is insane like <laughs> this is insane that human beings are allowed to just be like i'm literally a foot from this car giant piece of metal next to me we're both in control of these giant pieces of metal going 70 miles an hour. Right. It's it's insane. But, and so the thought of like, of course, I think I'm going to be more comfortable when I know that my those two giant pieces of metal are talking to each other. They know that they're there. It's not just me looking over, you know. Like I, I which is already starting because there are plenty yeah. of cars that now like don't let you change or like lanes ha or, you have to really really push it to to lane change 
when there's a car next to you. Um, but I think it's funny because I read all these stories even today and the, you know, the headline will be like, you know, autonomous car gets in an accident. Well, the autonomous car got in an accident because like some normal human like ran the red light or like took a left turn when they weren't supposed to. Like it's rarely like that the autonomous car is at fault. I think it's really funny that it really is human error that always seems to be causing I mean, it's not funny, but it's no, it's, it's, it's like true. Isn't it? Aren't car accidents the highest rate of death? Sorry, getting dark here. Highest rate of death uh, over you know heart attacks and cancer. And I, I was thinking about this recently. Like my husband and I accidentally flew on two different planes to the same destination recently because we're new parents and we're tired. But. <laughs> Um, everyone was like, oh, good, you're, it's better that way. Your daughter will be safer because you're on different planes. And Yikes. I'm like, what? I know, they, they said that. But Who I'm said thinking, that to you? Uh, family, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we all get in the same car every day. Yeah. I mean, planes are safer than cars. So I do think that th- for some reason we feel like we can control vehicles and because we are human, like we are strong, we can figure things out. But I think you're totally right. But I you, think you'd never say, hey, Pilot, let me take the reins for a little bit. No, exactly. I, I, don't, I don't trust you behind that <laughs> but largely pi- automated vehicle. You but know? the but uh, well, I mean, I want to ask a different question in a second. But like, the pilot is still another person that's been kind of like blessed with this authority, right? But they're but, not doing that much. But they're anymore. not doing. I mean, they're paying attention the whole time. But the amount of time that pilots are actually physically flying the plane is so low now. We have some great articles on our site about that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Good but, plug. But I really, like, I really, yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, yes, they are fully trained to fly the plane in case they need to grab the wheel. But, like, odds are they're maybe touching it once or twice the entire time you're in the air. So I wonder what kind of training we'll need to be engaging with autonomous cars. You know, Cheryl, is it the kind of thing where, like, your your license training changes if everything becomes autonomous? You really only need to do, like, two hours and read a book or something? <laughs> I don't know. So one of the things that that you guys already alluded to is that some of the safety features that will be embedded into autonomous vehicles are already on the road today. So Ford has vehicles that have adaptive cruise control. And if we go back to that five-vehicle caravan and we're all driving 70 miles an hour on cruise control uh, and the lead car starts to slow down to 60, before your brain can even process that the car is slowing down in front of you, there are sensors around the vehicle that are constantly measuring the distance between you and the lead vehicle. And it'll automatically start to reduce your speed to keep a safe distance. Um, We have those lane departure warnings. You have blind spot alerts. We have vehicles that actually already park themselves. But the future we're talking about, like those features, you still remain in control. There's a steering wheel. There's a brake Mm -hmm. pedal. Um, The level four, which is kind of what the Society of Automotive Engineers are talking about, means no brakes, no steering wheel. Um, And so there is no, it it is completely autonomous. It's hands-free driving, if you will. Um, I'm so good. The regulation about, you know, what do people have to know before they get into an autonomous vehicle is a really interesting question, you know. And even the question is, um, will people own? autonomous vehicles or will they be part of a fleet and could you have autonomous vehicles that are perpetually in motion so we also asked people when we were asking those people in nine different countries what they thought about autonomous driving vehicles we asked about whether they felt like they had good transportation options and and 90 close to 90 percent of the people we spoke to said that cities need better transportation options Um, but they actually said things like they would gladly sacrifice parking spaces for more green space so if you have an autonomous vehicle could they be perpetually in motion and all the all of the parking spaces that are dedicated in cities and suburbs for those vehicles be dispatched for different uses? So it that- could be out doing my grocery shop. I, I was thinking about this when you said earlier the oil change that you had to do. And every time I think of oil, because I have to get the oil changed on my car, and it's just such this like ordeal where I have to go to the place, I have to make an appointment, I'm there for half a day. I can imagine this like delightful future state in which the car just goes and does it itself. <laughs> like it just goes get, and gets the oil changed while I'm at work, and I, I don't have to ever do that again. I mean, this does sound like... We're not I, quite I, there, but <laughs> yeah, Lincoln, offers, like. <laughs> Lincoln offers a service where someone will come and pick up your vehicle um, with your... And if it's at work and you're like, hey, I need an oil change or I need service to my vehicle today, they can they'll go pick up your vehicle and take it to the dealership, do the maintenance and then bring it back to you. I mean, this utopia 
does sound delightful, but we are also human and we are flawed and we like I'm I'm having my heart is racing right now you as you say seen, this. <laughs> you should have seen Laura's face, Cheryl, when you said no steering wheels. I think her eyes were about to pop out of her face. <laughs> but it's just what happens to the serendipity of driving, the the freedom that comes with being behind the wheel. I just I feel like teenager me, that was my life. That was my my outlet. Um, it I could go from A to B and no one could tell me what to do. And now the car is telling me what to do. But I feel like on my end, like, you know, like I'm kind of the same way. I like really love, I love being the driver. Like whenever my friends and I go on road trips, I'm always like, I volunteer. Like I will do it um, because I love driving and I love the focus that it brings me. But at the same time, like when I'm in the passenger seat and a friend of mine is driving, I get to see so much more of what I'm driving through when I don't actually have to be like, oh, do we, was I supposed to get off there? Like, oh, no, where are we fair. going next? What are we doing? And I think that in this, you know, next phase, like everyone gets to be that passenger who like doesn't have to do anything and just actually gets to like enjoy the journey. And I'm sure that you can still go and say, oh, I want to stop off on that historical marker. Or, oh, I want to go do that thing. And just tell the car to take you there and not have to worry about like, what random back road you're going to take because it's going to know how to do that. As that happens, instead of playing the video game or watching the Netflix, which I'm sure is what I will do, (laughs) but I would hope that the angels of my better nature would compel me to look at the window. And I I wonder if we can see a convergence of like AR technology, screen technology, and windows, and there's a level of sophistication where you could actually you know, be looking out at a landscape and getting little details about that, especially as you're driving through parts of the United States, like, you know, the American Southwest or, you know, um, the Pacific Coast. Those places are just rich with all kinds of things to see. So almost like a guidebook pops, a guidebook item pops up on your window shield. It says like, a guidebook Zion. created by Condé Nast Traveler. Oh, another plug. Also. In collaboration oh, with Ford. Great idea. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. Well, I want to tell Laura, because I do remember her saying that she loved driving when we were last together in New York. And, I do. Very you know, for, for her and uh, your listeners that also love driving, Autonomous is part of our future, but it's not the only part of our future. In fact, our investment in performance vehicles has never been greater than it is right now. You you can't ever lose sight of the fact that most people that work for Ford come to do so because they love automobiles. You know, they're adrenaline junkies. They love the thrill of the drive. Um, They say oil runs through their veins, so they bleed (laughs) Ford blue. So we will still see that um, individual performance vehicle, the finely tuned handling in our portfolio. You know, I'm curious about the interim states and how, you know, the autonomous vehicles, let's say if the autonomous vehicles are 50% of the cars on the road and autonomous optional vehicles are 50% of the road of the vehicles on the road. How are those two different sets talking to each other? And how are the autonomous vehicles working around the still human error prone you know, non-autonomous vehicles, because like everybody thinks they're an excellent driver, but we can't all be funny and really great drivers. Sure. Yeah, we can. there's something like ninety percent of people would tell you they're above average drivers. Right. So and I'm know. I'm right whenever I say that, but not everybody. <laughs> I'm, else I'm, is. I'm one of the ten percent. <laughs> I'm subpar. Well, are there are there separate lanes? You know, do you keep or separate highways? Or are there highways just for autonomous cars? I'm predicting. I have no idea. So there is a lot of discussion around geofencing, right? So that maybe they just exist in pockets. Um, so you see lots of cities right now that are that have kind of changed the dynamic and are trying to limit the number of vehicles that actually make their way into the city center, uh, Paris, London. I mean, right, Times Square would be kind of an interesting example where you've just picked this space that used to be a hub of traffic that say no more cars no more cars. And so by extension, could there be those, you know, an expansion of spaces that say only autonomous vehicles um, enter in these parameters. That would address some of the infrastructure issues. But those, again, will, I think, be decided largely in part by the local governments that are saying, here's what we want, here's what we'll do, which is one of the reasons why I think China is such an interesting place to think about this going, because I think like the government could be act so nimbly and say, okay, we've we've decided this five-kilometer corridor or whatever will only be autonomous vehicles and we're start next tuesday you know for example like they it, so i think that those will also be really key determinants about where and when these things become a reality 
Do you think places like Germany, where you can go 220k on the autobahn, that is so much is left up to, you know, whim almost. Do you think those <coughs> cultures will? Oh, hi, Brody. <laughs> um, will be willing um, when you think about interacting with different governments. So Germany, as I when I look at that report that I was citing earlier. They have one of the lowest appetites for autonomous vehicles in, in from country to country. And so I do think they love that Audubon experience. I mean, anyone ever thinks about Germany, that's what they always think about. It's like, oh, you can go on the highway and there's no speed limit. You know, how crazy is that? Um, so there I think, you know, the the emotional relationship that people have with their automobiles or the sense of being in control and and the what we say, you know, pedal to the metal, um, open roads, wind in your hair, all of that are, are things that I don't think people are going to give up quickly. I have another infrastructure question, which is you've talked a couple of times and, and we've talked before about this notion of everything communicating with, you know, um, vehicles communicating with each other, but also communicating with the landscape around them, with other um, aspects of, of the landscape, roads and buildings and things like that. I'm wondering if the sort of current trajectory of bandwidth and 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 um, connectivity you know um like lte and the next generation of lte which is you know supposed to roll out the next year or the year after that are those you know just sort of like headed in the right direction or do we need some kind of quantum leap in order to facilitate the kind of the volume and the breadth of communication that we're going to have to have well you know everyone keeps talking about this internet of things where where everything eventually gets connected. And yes, that seems like you will need um, much greater resources to deliver that. I always kind of feel like the automobile is already the first node on the Internet of Things. It is the thing, you know, we have cell phones, but in a new way, they connect you to home, work, and every place in between. So uh, yes, I, I think that that's also a big part of the equation, is we- figuring out, do we have the um, network? Yeah. And we're, we're moving towards that already. I mean, there's cars that are connected to Wi-Fi that can communicate with your other Wi-Fi connected devices pretty seamlessly. Like, I think these are all things we're working towards. Yeah, I know. I just I'm cur- because, you know, there are different standards even for LT. Like if you're on Sprint, you have a different network solution than, you know, and, and I'm just wondering if they're all going to resolve to a standard. And, and does that standard need to have are there certain things that that capacities that that standard needs to have in order for us to get there? Um but I, like, I can't imagine there would be. I mean, given how many players are in the mix here, it's different car companies, each with their own tech. It's different municipalities, like you said, Cheryl, you know, city, state, federal. And that's just for the U.S. I mean, you try to interpret that across lots of different countries and cultures and systems. I mean, I, I think one size, like we said before, one size fits all probably won't apply, especially if, if it's going to be opt in versus opt out. You know, if all of a sudden, you know, some power that be in the world decides we're only going to have electric cars or we're only going to have autonomous cars like then maybe those standards can be set but as long as there is the opportunity to opt out i I can't i mean and maybe you have a data plan for your car you know and then if you're going to be crossing borders if you're going to be doing a european road trip you need to buy a separate data plan for that trip or something and to so be if able you to run out of data it. does your car stop or no, just go, <laughs> is it suddenly free, i don't think it's a I, free feel, I, don't, I doubt it would be a like bag of data that you could have to run out with but i think it would just be like buying into whatever that system is to do it i think i think everything would be an unlimited data plan in that scenario and you're just incrementally paying for what you use or you're just, or you're paying a monthly fee to have that, and then you have to pay more if you're going through different systems or different countries. I don't know. Have you thought about? Uh, I'm asking Seb specifically this. Uh, have you thought about what the net neutrality situation implies for something like that? No, I have not. It just happened yesterday. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> Get on it, man. <laughs> Look to the future, like Seb. <laughs> about you know, if you're crossing country borders, and I see it all the time because uh, Detroit is so close to the Canadian border and my family and I cross through Canada quite a bit. Um, There is like a two minute window where we have no access. um, And then it says you've switched, you know, you're now being picked up by a different carrier and your rates have increased. If you just, (laughs) and that's one where you say to everyone in the car, shut off your phones. You know, so there will, there are these, um, thresholds where where the fee structure i think changes and yeah. the, the 
the suppliers, so maybe there'll be more partnerships. We already have kind of Wi-Fi in our in some of our vehicles, but one of the things I talk about, even when so anyone who has a cell phone doesn't need any any navigation system in their car, but I always find that when my on those occasions when I do get lost um, and I'm in such a remote place, my cell phone service doesn't work. Neither does my map, and so that's that's a really difficult place to be in. So we still we have this philosophy about technology, the the things that are built into the vehicle, the things that are brought in, and the things that are beamed in. And we think that you still need those trilogy of inputs uh, to get the optimum outcome. Yeah, and I think I think that especially applies internationally because I mean, there's parts of the world I've driven in Namibia before where you can go you're like in a three hour dead zone with no connection whatsoever you can get that in Arizona yeah (laughs) I would also say like since we're talking about the cell phones like I think Europe's approach to this like you can go country to country and you can go carrier to carrier right like so there is a ton of consumer level choice and and freedom that you have to sort of opt for better service or or a different carrier or, or a different set of features or a phone or whatever that is a result of Actually, the government taking these very low governments taking this very low level platform approach and saying like, okay, everything is going to be on the GSM standard. Was that an EU standard? Or? Yeah, I, okay. I don't. I honestly, I don't want to say that I know the answer to that. I'm sure it was though, because it is true everywhere. And that sort of split that we have here, where it happens with operating systems too, right? And I can see this happening with cars, where you know, if you're an Apple person, right, and then you try to switch over to Android, there's a whole lot of stuff that doesn't work, right? It doesn't work the same way. And the place that Europe exists with cell phones where you can just, okay, now I'm going to France, I can just get another plan or get another SIM and pop it in, and everything works basically the same way. Most of Asia, too, you can do that. So I, I, I think there is a potential for some things to be kind of like agreed upon and like platforms to be bought into across the board. I don't know what would have to happen to to make that happen, but then it still allows a level of like competition and consumer facing choice to exist on top of that, that could actually be really great. And Cheryl, I don't know how you guys think about this. Like, you know, there are cars now where you can pop in and like your iPhone will connect and becomes basically the navigation system for the car. And there are others that have their own built-in kind of interfaces. And then there's another set that have Android built into them. So we already have, we have Apple CarPlay and um, similar system for Google. So that when you use a USB port and you plug in your phone, everything that you have in your phone is accessible now through our hands-free voice-activated system. So I can say, uh, play Pandora, um, mm. play this song, give me directions to this, call this person. And so that is complementary to the phone. It's, the phone kind of closes the loop, if you will. And what's nice about that platform is that even when you're renting a car, if you're in a Ford vehicle that has it, there's some people that say, that'll say to me, oh, I'm afraid to use that system. I'm afraid I'm leaving all my personal data behind. It doesn't happen that way because unless you have the actual phone in place, the loop never closes. So that could be a way that this works, at least in the short term. I guess it's already working that way where the phone or whatever our phone equivalent is in the future still remains the hub for yourself. You know? I got to say then, that makes a lot of sense to me because especially if we're talking about an environment in which a person to a car, that relationship that has sort of been conventional, like car ownership is broken apart, right? That's already happening where where ride sharing has become so common in certain contexts. And I feel like the phone is the thing that's going to travel with you. It also has biometric, you know, authentication. So the identification of the person with the stuff that's on the on the phone can be really tight and really strong. And you can just sort of have your own sort of personality and your set of priorities and your music and all the things that are part of that road trip experience, right? Part of driving can travel with you. And the car just becomes this thing that you integrate with in order to get where you're going or do whatever part of the journey. And and it uses the phone or whatever is the equivalent of the phone. It's probably not going to be the watch. Sorry. (laughs) Well, the way that I think about that oftentimes is like, the modern day car is basically a toolbox on wheels, you know, and the phone is one of the tools that you put in the toolbox. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I it guess makes a lot of sense. It, it just it makes the car, it puts it on the same plane as a train or a plane or a bus or things that we typically did not have agency over. Right. You know, so it it is not it's no longer a tool in my toolbox though it's just a another thing i ride and well, it's like a public utility almost. it is yeah. and like we talked a little last time about the notion of hitchhiking and if 
that becomes safer or the cross-country trip with just a fleet of cars going back and forth. I will say that when we go back to talking about Germany, there is this company called you know, blah blah car, which I've talked about before, and which is a French company. You're not just saying I can't remember the name. No, yeah, it's, literally, literally, blah, blah. it's literally called blah blah car. Um, it's a French company. Oh, they you're censoring yourself. <laughs> <laughs> they bought um, this German company called Carpooling.com a couple of years ago, um, but they are incredibly popular through Germany, through a lot of Europe as a whole, because it's basically a ride-sharing service, but it's across. It's like a road trip. So you're going from city to major city. You're going to from country to country. And someone is riding, like already driving that way. And you hop in the car with them. And you can like select, like, I want a quiet person. Or like, I want someone who's super chatty. And you can select all this information. It's kind of like finding a roommate. Um, <laughs> to drive you, you know, you pay them like you would an Uber. Uh, you know, to drive you wherever you're going, but they're already going there, which I feel like might be the way that these autonomous cars can work best in countries like the US or Germany, where people's interest isn't like hooked on having an autonomous car. But if you're having like a sh autonomous chauffeur, it sounds like much nicer to everybody, <laughs> where you could carpool and it would feel the same because there would still be a human element to it without. Yeah, maybe, and maybe you pay more for a private car. You right. pay a little less if you're sharing it with three other people and still going to the same place. You have you tried this? I haven't. I'm dying to. Yeah. Do you have friends who've done it? Yes, yeah. I do. It's like couch surfing, but, but you know, in a car. Car surfing. <laughs> so one of the things that I talk about that, you know, with that putting, getting in the cars with strangers is something that we think about a lot as a parent. My husband and I have two teenage daughters and, you know, I think Uber and Lyft are great such, uh, great product or market offerings. But as a parent, it's really daunting for me to think that my child is getting in a car with a complete stranger. You know, and while they have a GPS service that tells me where they are, it's not enough for me to save them or protect them from harm. I mean, it might help after the fact, um, but that's not reassuring to me as a parent. So when I think about a future where my kids could get from point A to point B, in an autonomous driving car, I'd rather do that than put them in a vehicle with a stranger. That's interesting. That's true, yeah. That's a good point. I remember when I was eight years old, I uh, missed the bus home from school, and so I just got in a cab and went home. <laughs> oh, my God. And my parents just saw me roll up in a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> and where were you? My mom was not happy. Hong Kong. <laughs> but the other thing about that that's so great is that you can know... Or, and maybe this is only for security. Maybe there's nothing you can really do, but you can know so much more about what's going on during the journey. And if you imagine the technology kind of like everything merging together, you could even sort of be present, have a conversation with your kid while they were in the car and sort of be aware you're going to know if they try to ditch it and get out. Although I have read about like there's a future when, you know, hacker kid, kids, teenagers <laughs> who are want to defy their parents will become hackers. All of them they'll become hackers where it used to be like, you know, mom, dad, can I get the car? Because you're going to always know where they are because you're going to have pre-programmed routes. Oh, you're going to the movies. Let's program that into the car. <laughs> so you can't go anywhere else. You can't go <laughs> and drink beer with your friends. Um, but then they'll become little hackers and they'll like, they'll, they'll hack the car's computer and like, it'll tell you that they're going to the movies, but instead they're going to drink beer with their friends. Dun, dun, dun. So teenagers will keep doing what yeah, they're doing. <laughs> And at least they won't be driving drunk. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's a good place to start. No more drunk road trips. That won't. Well, and that actually—that's a big thing about autonomous vehicles. There will be no more drunk driving, and no more no more accidents or fatalities related to drunk driving if you have autonomous future. I mean, I think that's a really admirable goal unto itself. Yeah, yeah. that's huge. Th that, if nothing else, because that'll account for a huge number mm -hmm. of fatalities and injuries and property damage and, and all kinds of... That, that if, if, if there were no other reason for you listeners to look forward to the autonomous driving future, that would be it. That's, <laughs> that's reason enough. Um, and maybe that's a great place for us to close. Um, thank you so much, Cheryl, for coming on and talking to us about this. It's fascinating work that you do. Um, it, I'm, I personally am really looking forward to the future and to all the steps in between and really excited about it. Well, thanks again for having me. You guys are so much fun to chat with um, anytime. <laughs> it's, it's becoming a regular thing. <laughs> um, we'll talk to you next month. Yeah. yeah. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to you guys for coming down and, and chatting about it. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com. And Mare, I, I want to 
promote again the women who travel. I've told people who are listening, <laughs> if you are not subscribed to this by now, shame on you. You should be really um, sh- ashamed of yourself because this <laughs> podcast is excellent. Tell us what's coming up. So if you do want to listen to Women Who Travel, which is my new podcast with Lolly Arakoglu, another editor and podcast regular, uh, you do not have to wait long because our first episode is going to re-premiere um, on SoundCloud and iTunes on Traveler next week. So you don't even, if you want to taste test and figure out if it's like your cup of tea, that's fine. I understand. Um, but Women Who Travel, uh, you can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes, but you can also listen to our first episode, which came out a few weeks ago, about solo travel next week on Travelogue. What's the next episode about? The next episode that'll come out the first week of January um, will be about FOMO, so kind of the fear of missing out that comes out of Instagram and sharing everything you do and following all these crazy people who travel for a living. Sounds fun. And what's the one that came out this past Monday? So the one that just came out last Monday, um, again, Women Who Travel on iTunes and SoundCloud, is kind of a really timely topic. We're talking to a bunch of chefs and bartenders um, and food writers just about you know women being a huge minority in the food industry. So if you're interested in that, we had a really, really great discussion um, with some really interesting people uh, and you guys already just so people know you guys already had that scheduled before all of the news of the last two three weeks yeah, started exactly. coming out right correct but I imagine the discussion turned a little bit it did it was um, that was not originally on the lineup of things for us to talk about but obviously came up I mean I think it would have come up anyway because you know the reason why we brought these women on is because they really are shaking up the industry like making their mark in an industry that historically has been really male dominated and, you know, like male ego dominated. And these women are making their own path despite a lot of harassment. And lack of opportunity and a variety of other things. All right. So get out there and uh, subscribe to Women Who Travel. It is awesome. We are Condé Nast Traveler. We are on Facebook and YouTube. CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and vestigially Snapchat. Um, (laughs) Please tweet at us. Send us feedback. We would love to hear about what you're excited about or not excited about for the future of the road trip. What are your favorite road trips? How, are they, how do you think they're going to change? How do you want them to change? And review us on iTunes. Laura, how can people get in touch with you if they want to? <laughs> I'm at Laura underscore Redman on Instagram and at Danon825 on Twitter. Mayor? I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor on Instagram and Twitter. Seb? I'm at Seb Modek on Instagram and Twitter. Cheryl, what's the best place for people to encounter your work? So, uh, FordTrends.com or at Ford. Awesome. I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everybody. Mm